Hello and welcome back to Control-Alt-Delete. Sarah Ellis is my return guest today. She's one of the founders of Amazing If, alongside Helen Tupper, which is an award-winning career development company. They are the co-hosts of the book and the podcast, Squiggly Careers. And today, Sarah is back on the podcast to talk about her new book, You Coach You, which I really enjoyed. It's a book for scribbling all over, writing notes, getting inspired. And it's all about how to help yourself during those knotty, difficult times during life and work. It's about those moments where you might want a coach or you might want to look externally for help, but also you can help yourself too and make those first steps before maybe investing in other help. Sarah and Helen are really brilliant at giving really practical advice on supercharging your confidence, playing to your strengths and setting yourself up for success. So I really hope you enjoy this conversation with Sarah. I definitely did. And I got a lot from it. So I'm excited to share it with you. So I'm so excited to welcome back Sarah Ellis to the podcast. Congratulations on your second book. Thank you so much. And it's so nice to be in person. I know it is. It's very exciting. Oh, it's just so, so good to see you again. Two introverts happily in a room. I know, (laughs) I know, I know. I've just got used to Zoom, so it is weird (laughs) adjusting, but it's good. So after the success of Squiggly Career, which you know that I loved and it was so up my street and I feel like it really gave people the terminology and almost this phrasing to describe their career path and the changes they're going to make. Why did you want to write this follow up book? Because I feel like you're plugging quite a lot of gaps as well. And it, you're almost like taking it to a new level and a new layer. Was that to do with like feedback from the first book and stuff that people wanted more of? I think it was more the squiggly career is really about knowing yourself and then thinking about where your squiggly career could take you. So we we talk about areas like strengths and values and confidence. And it's it's quite a proactive book. It's a book really thinking about who you are, what motivates you and where you could go, how you could develop in different directions. What we also recognise is there is no such thing as a straight line to success for anyone. It doesn't matter how shiny they look on the surface. I promise you there's been some knotty moments along the way. And what Squiggly Career doesn't help you with as much, we didn't feel, was if you are in the midst of a knotty moment right here, right now. So you have got a difficult manager. You want to be promoted, but it's not happening. You um, want to have more meaning in the work that you do, but you sort of don't know how how do you make that happen? Sort of quite immediate problem solving. Um, Often those moments are where you sort of in your head, you think, oh, if I just had a career coach, if I just had a coach to help me, it would be really useful because I need to find my way through this knotty moment. I need to get unstuck and I need to uncover new options. And these things feel hard. If they were easy, everyone would sort them out for themselves. But they these feel like tough moments. And that's what we really wanted to address with You Coach You is really think about some of the common challenges in our squiggly careers that we hear from people all the time. What are those areas like resilience and relationships and self-belief that come up time and time again? And how can we help people to help themselves and improve the quality of the career conversations they have with lots of different people at the same time? Yeah, because it's so practical. And like you just (laughs) said, that example of like not getting the pay rise or someone in your team being difficult or the office politics or not doing what you want to do. How did you know all of those examples? Because I feel like you're very in touch with your readership as well. Well, I think that's through everything else that we do. So primarily, probably the 
the way that we think about our readers are also the people who come along to our workshops. Mm -hmm. So we do lots of workshops with companies all around the world, but also some workshops that people can just join, you know, and anyone can come along to. And it's the questions that people ask. It's the topics that we see are really popular. So I think we are really helped by our Squiggly Careers community because they're always telling us, oh, I've got a bit stuck over here. I could really do some help. I, I believe in Squiggly Careers and I want to progress and develop in different directions but I'm struggling with the practical, how do I make that happen? And maybe I'm in a company where progression feels like it's only promotion and I want to think more creatively than that. Mm. I could do with some help though. I could do with a bit of support. And so I think it's really just listening to our podcast listeners, the workshops, the feedback from Squiggly to sort of see what are these common areas and then how can we be helpful? And I'm sure there'll be there'll be more and there'll be still ones that we've missed. Um, and that's why we also try to do loads of free resources and little worksheets that you can do just to give people these small ideas for action and coach yourself questions. That's what we've yeah. tried to do a lot of in the book. As you say, it's um, someone described us the other day as relentlessly practical, <laughs> which if you want something relentlessly practical, perhaps it's the book for you. If you don't, maybe it's not. <laughs> it's really good and you need a pen. And yeah, you do, you need, do need to write notes and scribble all over it, which I did. Because I think I love that about the practical stuff because there were things in there that I didn't realise that I that was happening to me until you actually spelled it out. I was like, oh, that's that's actually a challenge I've got at the moment. With the you coach you, because I've become really interested in coaching just because I've had a coach for the last two years mm -hmm. and seen the benefits of it. But I also understand that it's quite an expense and maybe not everyone can necessarily afford a coach. Did you want this to sort of fill a gap in terms of people that might not be able to go the full the full hog with it yeah I think for most people in certainly in organizations coaching is for the fortunate few mm. so if I think about the coaching that I was lucky enough to receive when I was in companies it it was because I was at a certain stage or a certain level in my career and it certainly wasn't available or accessible to everyone so I think I've I've seen and experienced firsthand the real benefits of coaching and then have qualified as a coach. So I really believe in coaching and I know that coaching works. I can just see that there's a gap in terms of, you know, that sense of I'd love to have a career coach by myself, but my maybe my organisation can't afford to fund that for everybody, which is understandable. And it's quite unlikely you can afford it for yourself. Now, there are some more accessible options definitely being developed by people, but I still think people don't give themselves credit for how far they can get themselves in terms of their own self-awareness and the actions they can take. So if you are motivated to kind of get get unstuck and to kind of uncouple that knot, I think people have got the capability to do that. Probably just need a bit of confidence and a few ideas for action and a few questions and prompts. And that's sort of what I hope we will help people to do. And we really want to encourage people to keep having career conversations. So we're not saying don't go and get coaching or mm -hmm. don't go and have those conversations. If anything, what we hope is if you are having coaching or if you're going to have a conversation with your manager or just a friend at work about your career, if you use the book as your starting point, the quality of your thinking and your awareness will hopefully improve. And then you'll have a way better conversation and a more useful conversation as a result. So I think we see you coach you hopefully as an and rather than an or, if yes, that makes sense. For sure, for sure. And that you spell that out really early on in the book because some people, yeah, might pick it up and be like, oh, I don't, <laughs> life coaches are going to be redundant. And it's like, well, no, it's definitely no. <laughs> going to accompany that. But yeah, you say in the book that you are 
that coaching can mean leaning into the un, the un, yes, the lots like, of uns, uh, unlocking, <laughs> unlearning, un, understanding yourself, yeah, <laughs> uncovering so new options. Where There's does lots that of uns. come from? What the uns? Yeah. Oh, just my head. <laughs> <laughs> because it really made sense to me. Because if you'd said to me, "How do you describe what coaching is?" Yeah. Now I know. <laughs> well, we were thinking. I think when people are coaching themselves, and if you're being coached, I think you're trying to always do two things. You want to improve or accelerate your self-awareness. You want to know yourself better and you want to take action because until if we don't take any action, then nothing nothing will change and we sort of, we're stuck in our own heads. And Helen and I, my co-author, we're really ch- challenging ourselves. We work really hard to try and make things simple and straightforward to, to understand. No one needs more jargon in, in their lives. And so we were trying to get to what, like, what are you really trying to do with coaching? And I just got to, I think you, it's always an un. Mm. And that's where the un came yeah. from. Just having that conversation of like, it's understanding, it's uncovering, it's unlearning. There's, there's always an un before it. So yeah, it just, it just came from a conversation about what are we really trying to achieve for our readers? Because our books are very written for our readers. As you said, they're, they're all about, you know, get writing in them. Um, we love it when people share them with each other. People buy them for each other as gifts. That's always amazing. And so we were just really thinking about what's the the positive outcome of You Coach You? And I think there's some sort of un at the yeah. start of that positive outcome. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> That's so brilliant. And I love the phrase critic creep. Oh, yeah. Could we talk a little bit about that? About, you know, I love talking about inner critic, but also there's a really big chapter on self-belief, which I wasn't expecting. And mm. I loved it because it's almost the thing that we don't talk about. Like mm. We can talk about all the tools and all the practical things and all of the physical items you need or the technology and the time, but actually the actual inner belief. I needed that chapter. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're, we talk about critic creep, which is basically this idea of in our heads at any one time, we all have this, um, as Ethan Cross would say, brilliant psychologist, we all have this chatter happening. And some of that uh, inner monologue is useful. It's our sort of when our inner coach is in charge. And some of it is really unhelpful, which is the inner critic. But I don't think it's as binary as that. I don't think it's sort of one's in charge all of the time and then it switches over. I think your critic creeps in. Often you're not that conscious of it and it becomes really unhelpful and it hinders you in terms of thinking, oh, maybe I won't apply for that job that I probably could do, but what happens if I don't get it? And all of these things happen in your in your head before you've even had a conversation with somebody about whether you could do that job. So we sort of get in our own way. When that inner critic creeps in, it's when we we don't do the things that actually are really motivating. This is not about what you should do or what other people tell you should do. We can kind of ignore that. This is much more about you and the beliefs that you've got that drive your behaviour. And when I was researching this, those beliefs that we have, that kind of inner critic those beliefs are so sticky. So the unhelpful ones, even if they are not true and there's not very much evidence, if I was to ask other people about that inner critic, they might not be able to tell me those things about you at all. For us, they feel really real. Um, There's a lovely quote where it's like our um, beliefs are the mental architecture through how we see the world. So essentially they're like scaffolding in our brains Mm -hmm. and so they are are strong. (laughs) And so unfortunately... That means that then it it stops us. It stops us getting unstuck and covering new options, understanding ourselves. So we've got to figure out ways to just every time you hear and you start to spot and you notice that inner critic creeping in, basically you've got to got to put it back back in its box. You you're not trying to completely ignore or avoid it, 
because as Susan David says so brilliantly, we should just use our doubts as data. That has always really stuck with me. So Mm -hmm. let's not pretend that that doesn't exist because it, it does. We're all human and none of us are perfect. So we're not trying to say we want to suddenly have a brain where you never hear that inner critic. I mean, who whoever has that? That's just completely that unrealistic. <laughs> um, and, you know, that inner critic is probably helpful from time to time. But if we redefine our relationship with that inner critic, I think from the in terms of the work that we do and the confidence we have in ourselves, it, it can just transform the potential, the opportunities, the possibilities that we can explore in that squiggle. Navigating a squiggly career with your inner critic in charge, I think, is is really really challenging. Yeah, it's so so true. And I love the illustration in your book of the deep diver going <laughs> deeper and deeper and deeper into discovering what that is. Because, like you, like that analogy of the scaffolding, I always think of your brain and your and your lens on the world, like a camera lens, and like sometimes there's like a smudge on mm-hmm. it, and you need to like kind of get rid of yes. that smudge because it's it's obstructing the view of your life because some of it is made up beliefs. Yeah. But I had a question and I don't know where this could go. I just thought it'd be interesting to bring it up. I what's the difference between self-belief and self-esteem because I feel like I have a lot of self-belief. Like I feel like I could go and write another book. Like I I, feel, mm-hmm. I believe I can and I believe I can go and do it. Whereas like my self-esteem I feel like is not quite there. Like sometimes I just still feel like a teenager and I'm like <laughs> sat on a stage being like, what What am I doing here? Even though my self-belief is quite good. Yeah, that's interesting. I think your self-esteem is more about um, your sense of your own worth. That's it. Yeah. And then I think your self-belief is, do I believe I can do that thing? Do I believe I can write that book? You might think, yeah, I've got good self-belief. But then you might kind of think, do, do I feel like I am... I am worthy or I or I belong. Sometimes it might be about belonging. Do I feel like I belong in this category of incredible authors? We might look at you from the outside in and go, <laughs> yeah, of course you do, Emma. But you might be thinking to yourself, oh, no, I don't, I don't know if I am worthy of being alongside some of these other brilliant people who are probably just a bit like me. So I'm sure they are intertwined. But I think the self-esteem is probably more in the kind of core of your identity, like who, who you are and whether how you see your own self in terms of belonging and being part of the world that we are in. And then your belief, I suspect, shows up more in your actions. And and this is, there's no science behind this, to to be very clear, but I think maybe your self-esteem is more internal and maybe your self-belief is more external, what other people might be able to see, whereas your self-worth, I suspect, is often quite hidden. But but I don't know. (laughs) I know that's a really good description because I think for people listening, they might think, like me, that they, that the belief can actually be quite strong but it's it's also navigating the other stuff that pulls you back and this mm. is why this book is so good because in many ways it's the missing puzzle piece isn't it of going after the thing you want to do yeah and i think um because i never like to describe a problem without then saying to people and here's some things to think about i think if you are thinking you recognize and you can notice that that inner critic is a challenge for you there are a few things a few really small tools you can start practicing that straight away will help you and the first is always try um, to do the fly on the wall technique. It's a really, really simple thing. But if after a meeting or if you're trying to really think about um, something where you're not feeling very confident about it, rather than seeing your situation in first person, see your situation as if you were a fly on the wall. So rather than Emma sitting opposite me now, we'd be imagining Emma as a little fly on the wall to one side. Kind of basically this is um, distance. Because distance and perspective gives us new data. 
essentially it's really it's really helpful to see things sort of when we're not sort of really in it because when we're in it we've got all those beliefs that can be quite unhelpful and you know you're emotionally in it and you're in that moment but if we then just have that bit of distance then we can start to spot actually maybe I felt like I didn't uh, do a very good job in that meeting I didn't ask very many good questions but a fly on the wall might tell me actually you asked three really useful questions yeah okay maybe one of them could have been improved but perhaps I've come out of that meeting and gone it's a disaster or perhaps I came out of that interview and think I didn't give any good examples of the work that I did is is that what a fly on the wall would just tell me about that interview so just I sort of literally imagine yeah, myself as that. like a Sarah based fly sometimes <laughs> I find really really helpful and and it just helps and if you practice that quite a lot it helps you to just be more objective and I think calm and it gives you a sort of pragmatism that is quite useful in all of the uncertainty and change that we have and the other thing that you can do is we we describe them as self-supporting statements but but write down the sort of the beliefs that you want to guide you that you want to have front of mind in terms of navigating your squiggly career so rather than uh you think my self-worth or my self-belief is all about how much i know i've got to be the smartest person in the room maybe it's well i'm going to define success by how much i grow and so mm-hmm. sometimes we've just got to be very transparent about doing a bit of reframing essentially this is just reframing the reframing is easy to say and actually quite hard to do. It takes a bit of practice. So I would suggest if you're listening to this and again, struggling with your self-belief, write down three statements that you think is what w- what you tell yourself when your inner critic is in charge and have a go at reframing them as if your inner coach was in charge. Like what would they say instead? And if you find that hard, best way to do this is put yourself in your best friend's shoes because mm-hmm. your best friend is better at reframing you than you are reframing yourself. So if you're thinking, um, I'm, I'm too young, or I've not got enough experience to do these things and that sort of feels like you're in a critic's in charge, imagine your best friend. So I might go, right, Rachel's my best friend. What would Rachel say about me applying for this job and I'm going, I'm not experienced enough? Well, Rachel would say, well, you will bring your curiosity and a fresh perspective to this role. Okay, that. Maybe I should remember that bit. So like that being your own best friend uh, is really good advice when we're trying to build our self-belief. And obviously go and talk to your best friend. You know, that, yeah. that's always a good thing to do. But also to practice reframing, sometimes just putting yourself in someone else's shoes who is a supporter and a sponsor, cheerleader and a champion who always see your best self and they always see that inner coach just helps you with practicing reframing because it is, it's, it's one of those techniques that, once you've learned it, you can use it in loads of different ways, but it just take a bit of practice. Wow, that's amazing. And I've seen the benefits of that for sure, where I've almost had to give myself a little pep talk. Yeah, exactly. And that. something that really helps for me, and this sounds a bit cheesy, but because uh, I had to go in, well, I didn't have to. I agreed to go and <laughs> interview someone on stage at the South Bank in front of like a 2,000-seater audience. And I was in the back of the taxi having been really out of practice. And I just, I just said to myself, I trust you. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. I trust you can do this. Like, mm-hmm. there's a trust there. And I felt like it was almost like the coach, which I do have, like she would have said, like, trust yourself. Yeah. You, you've done this a million times. And um, it was like talking to myself like I was my friend. It was really nice and really powerful, actually. And actually, somebody like Ethan Cross would say, to make that work even harder for your brain, rather than saying, I trust myself, actually going, Emma, trust yourself. You have done this before and you can do this again. Emma is good at this thing. 
bizarrely, again, sometimes talking about yourself. I mean, Ooh, okay. in, in the third person. And less of an ego because it's less I, I, I. Yeah. And also somehow, because again, it's back to that distance point because it's a, it feels almost more credible for your brain because you're sort of describing it as if it's not you. And then you, you connect with it in a different way. It is If you um reading uh, the work of Ethan Cross, a brilliant psychologist who's worked on this for years, uh, loads of like sports stars do this, people in loads of different kind of walks of life just use their own name. So I think we, we call it in the book, um, the technique, say your name, say your name. Obviously, no one else needs to hear this and it can happen in your brain because obviously you sound a bit ridiculous going, Emma, in the back of a taxi, <laughs> trust yourself. Emma, you're incredible. But even just sometimes, again, that's a small tweak to what you'd have just said, maybe would have given you that extra oh, wow. like five or 10% boost. It's, a, it's a, a small one, but actually has quite a big impact. That's amazing. And do you <laughs> find that not judging others as harshly, you then don't judge yourself as harshly? Because I always find that if I'm, I go easy on other people. Like if I watched a talk and they, you know, stumbled a bit or, you know, their earring was clacking against the microphone, I'd be like, hasn't really impacted my enjoyment of the talk. Whereas if that was me, you know, I'd be like, I messed it up. Yeah, I think we frequently put ourselves on an unhelpful pedestal in terms of our own expectations of what we think we should do and mm. the level the success we should have and we are all our own worst critics w- way worse than any anyone else is exactly as you've just described and I think just some of these small tools and techniques the thing that I always want to kind of make sure is we don't want to get in our own way I think people have more opportunity and possibility and can be even more brilliant than they give themselves credit for in my experience and then when people start to do these things with that bit more confidence and control and clarity they're almost surprised they're like oh I can do this job or I can lead this team or I can work in a different way and it's like they people definitely can and I see it time and time again that people almost like you say almost a bit shocked by their own brilliance so we just know it's that whole thing if you kind of got to get out your own way it's it's hard to do, but I think some of these small techniques just give us that that sort of small bit of seeing ourselves in a new way. And the more you do it, and then the more positive results you have, it's like a little snowball of self belief, of positive self belief. I absolutely love that. I've come back to this time and time again because I think. One of my biggest fears actually is thinking I'm better than I am. Like, I know that that's probably a really British thing to say. Like, if I don't know, if self-help American authors like don't seem to have this problem, but it's almost like I'm worried that I would be in a room and think I'm doing a good job and and I'm almost um, not in not in reality. <laughs> but I don't think that's going to happen. <laughs> but also, if you think about the person, if you're thinking that, the person least likely for that to be true will be you. So if you, if you, because essentially you've just described managing your own ego and we all have, we all have an ego, but you've just described, you're like, oh, I think I'm doing a good job. And then you're sort of talking yourself out of it going, am I doing a good job? Maybe I'm doing a good job. And I sort of, and I sort of think if, if that is running through your head, you will already be moderating yourself so that you won't be arrogant. There'll, there'll be no situation or circumstance. I'm really confident knowing you where you'll get anywhere close to arrogance because you're already doing that self-moderation of your ego to make sure you're doing as brilliant job as you can. Okay, that's really good to know. This idea of having a work-life fit versus a work-life balance was so, so great for you to kind of have a whole chapter on because um, 
Work-life balance for me has always been like the the stick that I beat myself with. Like I never have enough balance. I can't have a 50-50% life and work. Am I a workaholic? Do I have a, you know, do like all these checklists of things that I never quite get round to. Whereas the work-life fit is, is I think, a better fit. <laughs> Would you be able to talk a little bit about the difference? Yeah, I think one of the common coaching challenges that we identified when we were thinking about what topics do we cover was loads of people feel exactly the way as you've just described. I've not got work-life balance, but it's something I crave. It's something I I want more balance. And I think wanting more balance is, is not a bad thing at all. But we were just trying to find a way of describing it, which felt less binary, less on one side of the scales I have all of the rest of my life. And then on the other side, I have work and never feeling like you're balancing those scales. To your point, I think then you just always feel like you're setting yourself up to fail. Then we don't feel good about ourselves. Then that doesn't help our self-belief. So it's it's just an unhelpful framing. Um, and there's a, there's a brilliant phrase uh, by a philosopher who says, you know, the words that we use do frame how we see the world. So if we just talk about work-life balance all the time, mm-hmm. we're using words, I think, frame our world in an unhelpful way so we've got to find a new way of describing what it is we're trying to achieve which I think probably fundamentally is the same thing yeah so we go with work-life fit I don't think we're necessarily saying it's perfect we just feel it's better than balance and I think the thing that we really want to encourage people to do when they're thinking about work-life fit is to think of it in an imperfect way I think that's got to be your starting point is if you're trying to aim for perfection again you're probably always setting yourself up to fail yeah. versus if we can think about, well, what does my work-life fit look like today? What does my work-life fit look like in a week, at a weekend, over the course of a month? And I almost describe it as like, um, I think you're constantly calibrating and every day is imperfect. You know, who has like a perfect day where like everything is compartmentalized into this like perfect, perfect day? Nobody. But I think if you've made some active choices about that fit and you feel in control of those choices, I think it completely redefines your relationship with it. I think choice and control are so important here is if I think so, let's use today as an example. Today, um, I won't be back home in time to put my four and a half year old to bed. Absolutely fine. Don't feel guilty about that. Put him to bed yesterday, put him to bed all the time. But today I have, it's, it's a choice that I have been in control of to think, well, My day-to-day is very work-related. But interestingly, the reason I won't be home in time is because I'm going to go to an exercise class. So that's the reason. that I'm. So I'm going to miss his bedtime because I'm going to go and do some dancing, (laughs) essentially. And I'm not going to feel bad about that. And that's... So today, my work-life fit is about work and also a bit of fitness for me. And that, that feels fine. But when I think about across a week, do I also look at my diary and think, but will I be able to put... Max to bed a couple of nights this week. Absolutely, I know I'll be there. Um, am I going to get to see my partner? Am I going to get work done? So I think I see it as almost, I always visualize it as like puzzle pieces, but I'm never trying to do all of the puzzle all together all at the same time. Yeah. And that's where I think we, I think that's the aspiration that almost we're trying to get to all the time versus I go, oh, well, today my two puzzle pieces that I do want to fit are work and a bit of personal fitness. Okay, well, they're my yeah. two. Then tomorrow, it'll be a bit different. And then over the week, it'll be a bit different. And if you see it as an ongoing work in progress, I think then it helps you around well, what choices are you making this week? Do you feel good about those choices? Do you want to change those choices? Do you want to experiment with making some different choices and see what impact that has on your day and on your week? 
And that, I think, is a very different way of this whole balance thing that we're all aspiring to. Obviously, I'm I describing it as if I do it well all the time. I don't. No, but it makes so much sense because I think I've always felt guilty around... Because in my head, when I was taught what work-life balance was somewhere along the line in society's <laughs> rule book, it was like... Uh, having a good breakfast and maybe a, and doing exercise in the morning and <laughs> having a nine to five mm-hmm. and then and then switching off in the evening. Whereas that's not how I work. Yeah. Sometimes I work really late, but I like lie in bed till like 10 or sometimes I work on a Sunday writing my novel because no one's emailing me, but then I'll take Friday off. Like it, I know I, you know, it, that doesn't necessarily apply to people with more traditional full time jobs, but I do think that we can make it work for us and have that fit. And lean into our personality traits more, lean into our energy levels more. Like this makes so much more sense. But you have in the book kind of split it out what work-life balance means and work-life fit means. And yeah, you say perfect balance, imperfect fit, having it all versus what's more important right now. Uh, Work-life balance is I should be doing this and work-life fit is I'm doing my best. But interestingly, the work-life balance myth is has been designed for women, You've, you've mentioned four women in here and then work-life fit is for everyone. It does f- feel like a gendered thing, the work-life balance thing, because I feel like women are supposed to have a balance. I'm like, what does that even mean? <laughs> yeah, and I think maybe that's because traditionally some of the caring roles, you know, particularly around yeah. kids, it did end up being, you know, taken more by women. And also I think the I talked about guilt. Um, I interviewed a brilliant uh, clinical psychologist called Dr. Bill Mitchell, and he, t- I said, what's the biggest thing that gets in the way of our resilience? And actually, I wasn't expecting guilt to be to be the answer to that question. But he said, oh, it's it's pe- feeling guilty. So if we're going to be resilient, you know, you've got to look after your. It makes sense, your brain and your body. You've got to look after kind of all of you, your mental health, your physical health, and that that helps us to be resilient. We describe it in you coach you as your resilience reserves. Often we don't think about resilience until something goes really wrong. Whereas we would recommend a much better approach to being resilient is be kind of build those resilience reserves all of the time, every day in small ways, so that they're there when you need them. Because the last thing I want to do is to try and build loads of resilience when I'm having a really hard moment. I want them to be there at that point so I can draw upon those resilience reserves. And I think what stops us doing that is this guilty point. And I do wonder whether sometimes women feel more guilty in terms of thinking, I, I can't possibly miss my kids' bedtime or maybe I can't go and do something that is purely for me. Um, and again, back to um, what Dr. Bill talks about, he was like, one of the best ways to build resilience is to do something that is purely for you, that is selfish, that is mm. what really what you really enjoy, whether it's a hobby or whether it's just like reading or whether it's cooking. And those things often get sacrificed in our days and in our weeks. And I don't think that is always women who do that at all. Like, I'm very lucky I have a partner who does loads of those things and we kind of make it all work but if it all falls to one person then again your resilience is just so much lower so when those hard moments come so when those restructures come at work which they do sometimes when you're trying to find the resilience to go for that big promotion you want to go to it can feel too tough and it can feel too hard because those resilience reserves are are not there to draw upon Mm, that that makes makes so much sense and on that note of of creating your own work-life fit there's a bit in the book where you say that your success or your boundaries come from all the things that you say no to yeah I think you say something like the what you say no to kind of defines your career essentially or defines your progress um would you be able to describe the um 
was it in the Harvard Business Review, the monkeys yes. uh, theory <laughs> yeah. first, but also how if you're overloaded with other people's things and other people's monkeys, how how do you start yeah. saying no to those? Yes, yeah, so we definitely can't can't take credit for this. But there was there's an article actually in the late 70s, which just shows how this still feels really relevant. We still probably not quite got this right about managing your monkeys. So a monkey is essentially a job to do a task on your to-do list. So something as you're thinking about work, you kind of go, we all got lots of monkeys that we need to sort of manage as we go through a week. The challenge becomes when we end up adopting other people's monkeys, which is really, maybe sometimes we we don't say no to something. So then suddenly we've got a new monkey we hadn't anticipated. Maybe we, in the spirit of trying to be helpful, you know, take take someone else's monkey. Maybe because we think we can do it quicker ourselves. You know, we then end up having another monkey on the list rather than helping someone to help themselves. So our monkeys can feel overwhelming and we adopt all these extra monkeys, essentially. And then that means that it does feel like there is just not enough time in the day to do all the things that we need to do. And that's the sense of feeling overloaded and overwhelmed. Overloaded tends to feel tends to feel better, interestingly, than overwhelmed. Overloaded is we've got too many monkeys, but we think we can find a way to get through it. But that way through it might be working evenings or starting early or working weekends, but you sort of feel like you can just about get your arms around those monkeys. Mm. Um, it's the visual analogy, like they're stuck to yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, that's how I think yeah, of them. That's how I think of You know, them. like that game, like that monkey game back. where they just all sort of keep on climbing. Yeah. And then I think when you're overwhelmed, it's you've also got all of these monkeys all over you. And and you you just going, I've got absolutely no idea how I'm going to manage these monkeys. And that's also where we get to really risky areas in terms of, you know, burnout, feeling really anxious, really stressed in, in a very unhelpful and um, unhealthy way. And almost like freezing because you don't know what to do. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I'd say that having known some of these things, that still definitely happened to me a couple of times last year where I was sort of going, ah, mm-hmm. and that's, you know, you sort of go, I can't figure or find my way through this because it feels really hard. So... The key here to manage the monkeys is not to adopt them in the first place. We all have enough monkeys. We don't need new monkeys uh, to kind of keep the analogy going. And so to be able to do that, I think, yes, we do have to say no, but I would always want to talk about that in a more nuanced way because I think the reason that feels hard for people is we can mistake that for feeling like I have to then just say to you, uh, you know, you're my manager. And then I have to say, well, Emma, no, I'm not going to do that. Already, you're like, that's really hard. That doesn't feel realistic for most people. If you've got clients. If you've got a client, how, what are you going to do? Oh, can please, can I have this by the end of the day? Um, no, no, sorry. You know, that, that, that feels too, too difficult to do for lots of us. However, what most of us can do is think a bit more about, okay, well, how can we be more transparent about sharing our priorities and about the choices that we need to make and actually include and involve people as part of that process? So let's say you're one of my clients and you say to me, um, can I have this by the end of the day, please, Sarah? Having the confidence to go back to you and say, oh, hi, Emma. Um, actually, I've got two podcast interviews to do today. Um, is there any chance I could get this to you by Wednesday or by midday tomorrow. So just to see if I can buy myself a bit more time. What is so surprising about that is when I have tried that as a kind of technique, as just like just challenging back and letting people know there's a reason why and but this is when I could do it by, and really committing to that sort of promise. Nine times out of ten, people come back and say, "Oh yeah, it's absolutely fine." And you're thinking, right? Well, the alternative might have been that I'd have worked until nine o'clock tonight to do that. And someone has said something without realising, it's completely unintentional, without realising the impact and the consequence yes, yes. that that is going to have on your day. 
Now, occasionally, it might be really urgent, in which case, though, it might be the odd example where, of course, you kind of pull all the stops out for someone to get something done. But I think just not being afraid to challenge timelines to kind of just, mm-hmm. just make sure that is a timeline because someone's got a meeting or they absolutely have to do something or actually is there quite a lot of flex? And then involving people and not feeling like we have to solve everything ourselves. And if you're really stuck with your priorities, you know, having a conversation with your manager and saying, well, if I'm now going to do this new piece of work that we hadn't anticipated, then that does mean that I can't do B, C and D. And and that's fine. But does that, can we agree that together rather than me feeling like I have to make all these decisions by myself? We talk about that um, a bit in You Coach You, this technique of if and then. I always find if then as a way of framing my thinking really helpful. So if I am going to do this, then I can't do these other things over here. That kind of works for work-life fit. It works for prioritizing. It works for how we think about our time. It's a helpful mechanic to encourage us to do we call them time trade-offs. You can't just keep adding on. Yeah. You know, like yeah. I think we have a, our instinct is to say yes and to add on. And then, but that is, that is, yeah. we are all finite in our time. And that's when we get to the tipping point of it becomes too much. And we do get into that overloaded and overwhelmed. Whereas if we just practice lots of if then thoughts and work out how to frame, to frame that in a way that feels natural for us, whether that's having a conversation or an email, then it's amazing how those, it sort of feels like a small thing, but suddenly you're like, okay, I don't have to do it today. I've got two more days. And you're reminding your boss that you're not, you can't be cloned. There's not two of you, there's one of you. So therefore, if I do this, I might not be able to do that. Or that's really good advice. God, it's so great, this book, and it frames (laughs) things so clearly. So it's so good. And I always feel really kind of, it's kind of smug feeling in a way when you're like, you're aware of the tools and then you try it out and it works. And you're like, <laughs> I have something that works that, you know, came from this book that I read. Well, also um, I use it all, <laughs> all the time as well. Yeah. You know, like it's, it, and it's not about um, suddenly, I always think everybody can coach themselves. No one has a magic formula that they're following that makes them so much better at this stuff than anyone else. I think the people I see who are navigating their squiggly careers really successfully in their in their own way, have just got all these tactics and things they're experimenting with, things they're trying out. And some of them will work better than others. We forget some of them some of the time, need to be reminded of them. We need to have the right support around us. But I think if you can get used to this, it essentially gives you that control that I think we want in our careers rather than leaving it to chance or feeling frustrated and that you know we want to progress, but perhaps it feels like there's loads of constraints. So I, I think it's this sense of, really small actions that can just help us to feel like we are exploring all of the incredible things that we can do in our career and accepting the inevitable knotty moments that come our way and feeling that you've got, you might not want them, but you've got the confidence to find your way through. It'll feel hard, yeah. but but you will find your way through them. Definitely. Oh, well, thank you so much. I've got one last question before we wrap up, but um, yeah, anyone that's wanting more and the practical, amazing advice in the book, I will leave the link below um but yeah just more of a personal question I guess like what have your what what have your challenges been that you kind of feel most relate to you in this book because obviously you have your own business you Mm -hmm. you have your own squiggly career (laughs) (laughs) well I think the writing the relationships chapter um which we've not talked about as much today was interesting because it was the most challenging chapter to write 
Um, and Helen and I, we, we write we write the books together. Um, Helen is a real extrovert, my co-founder. I'm much more of an introvert. I probably enjoy writing more than Helen does. Obviously, it's quite a lonely pursuit, isn't it, writing at times? And if you're really extrovert, you're like, I want more people in my life. And the relationships chapter was the closest I think we got. We had, we had a lot of friction between the two of us, which we're not we're not used to. We get on very well most of the time. And I think, you know, we did that thing. Actually, you probably don't because you, you write all your brilliant books by yourself. But I'd written one version of the chapter. Then Helen sort of wrote a different version. And then I just wrote a different version. So we weren't really challenging each other and kind of building to make things better. We were just sort of doing our own versions. And that sort of... And by that point, I think we had been, we had to write a lot of the book remotely. We weren't able to see each other because we were writing a lot of it through the pandemic, giving loads of feedback to each other over Zoom. And we'd sort of been going, it had been going really well till we got to this really crunchy chapter where we were so keen to not shy away from some of the hard things around relationships. And we wanted it to feel unique and to be useful. And we were really kind of um, holding ourselves to account to that standard and sort of just couldn't find our way through it. And, you know, just kind of got to this point of just going, this is this is not working, almost like our relationship wasn't working, the, the chapter wasn't working. But the best thing that we did was actually laugh about it, which might sound funny, but I sort of went, Helen, we can't we can't break up over a relationship chapter. It would be too ironic. <laughs> and we, it has to be that chapter. Yeah. yeah. And also we work in really different ways. So I would like to send Helen a chapter quite late at night but she works first thing in the morning. So I would wake up to WhatsApp messages from her, almost a bit frustrated or kind of not happy, or she would wake up in the morning to reading a chapter that then she was like, well, where's this come from? So it was, I think that chapter for me is almost now one of the ones I'm most proud of because the thing that we felt confident enough to do was not to rush it. So when we sort of sensed that tension we talked about it. Helen always says, and she's better at this than me, um, fix friction fast. And she's really right. So rather than, I like bottle stuff up, you know, I'll like sit with it and brood um, <laughs> and, you know, just, and then it, it spirals and it your mind like magnitudes, mm-hmm. you know, it, it kind of feels like it's bigger than it is these challenges. And I think the thing that I'm proud of in those moments is that we, we recognise, we were like, right, this is not, this is not right. This is not working. And let's talk about it let's try and get some perspective. Let's use that distance to kind of get some data. We, so we started to use some of the things that we had written to then help <laughs> yeah. to sort out the chapter that was like, it was like our problem child chapter. Um, and I'm so glad because it meant that, hey, that chapter took us longer. It meant that we had to completely rip up sections of it, which never feels great. You're like, you've worked hard on something and you're like, you'll know, you've got to get rid of that bit. But then we kept going and we were confident enough to start from scratch and to actually we had to extend our deadline with our publisher. We had to write to them, right, you know, back to saying no. We had to go and say, right, we we are not happy with with where that chapter is. We need some more time. We just want to take, want to go and read and get a bit of inspiration. We needed a bit of space from it. You know, sometimes you've got to go away to come back to it. And so I think that's one of the things that I'm really proud of because for both the business that we run and the books that we write, I think it's really important that we disagree with each other, but that we do that in a healthy way that makes the work that we do better and even more useful and hopefully more practical and I think that's where we got to with that chapter but it was you know it was quite an interesting sort of we were applying the techniques from the book and we were trying to write the chapter um and you know we we run a business but also we've been friends for 20 years Mm -hmm. 21 years and so and we're very different that's so helpful so it was such a messy it was such a messy time um but I hope now 
when people read that chapter, they'll see that we've not sort of shied away from, well, how do you manage difference? How do you fix friction? But also how do you create positively a career community around you to help you have the support and to build your self-belief in those kind of areas. So now I look at it and I'm really proud of it, but um, it was a very massive process getting there. Well, thank you for sharing that because, yeah, it is quite meta, but also interesting to to hear that (laughs) you've used your own advice, which I'm sure you do daily. Um, And I think you touch on that in the acknowledgements, actually, that there was, um, you're thanking someone for bearing with you maybe your editor or something for yes more time and things yeah. so yeah we do yeah, actually, yeah that's really good to um to hear from you and yeah thank you so much for all your work people benefit so much from it and um really excited to well you know the future holds many things but we'll talk again <laughs> thank you so much <laughs> thank emma you. thank you